Hello, and welcome to Murthy Law Firm Teleconference on PERM, Recent Adjudications and Trends. I'm Aaron Finkelstein, Managing Attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, and I'll be your moderator today. Along with me are two fantastic attorneys, Attorney Pam Geniz, who's one of our members at the firm. She's also a supervising attorney in our green card department, as well as Jim McLaughlin, a really smart, sharp attorney in our green card department, who'll be assisting us with this teleconference. For those of you who are new to PERM, PERM, most employment-based green card cases are a three-stage process, and they start off with PERM. The labor certification, or PERM, is the first part of the process. And generally speaking, when an employer looks to sponsor somebody, they have to determine that there is no one that is ready, that there's no U.S. worker that's ready, able, and willing to perform the job in order to be able to say that they can have a foreign, foreign worker um, to certify that a foreign worker can be sponsored by that particular company. Part of being able to verify that is to conduct a recruitment to determine whether or not qualified U.S. workers are available. So to start with recent adjudication trends, I think we should start with recruitment and recent um, trends in recruitment. Jim, what can you tell us about any recent developments? Thanks, Aaron. That's absolutely right. Uh, the Department of Labor is really a nitpicking on the recruitment portion in audits that they're actually issuing. Now, one thing employers have to remember is the real-world practice versus DOL expectations. In the real world, you're looking for the best individual that you can find. In the PERM process, you're looking for the very basic minimum requirements. Someone who can do the job, sit down, and just do it as you've stated on paper. So when you're thinking about uh, recruitment and what forms to utilize, you have to remember the Department of Labor is looking for the good faith of the employer. They're looking for uh, various areas of recruitment that are appropriate for the position and for the location. Some of the denials we've seen recently include the employee referral program that um, for employers who don't, that are relatively small employers, the Department of Labor feels that you're not going to get the most amount of applicants in using the referral program, employee referral program, excuse me. Um, and additionally, in the referral program, when you do utilize it and you're not a small organization, you have to make sure there's a clear nexus between the employee referral program and the actual advertised position for the PERM recruitment. Another thing to keep in mind is when you're doing website postings, make multiple printouts of the URL and the date. Uh, lastly, if you're utilizing a private employment firm, make sure you include the contract, plus confirmation that they actually did recruit for the specific position you've stated on the labor certification. And lastly, I'd just like to point out that for any applicants that you may not been able to get in contact with, you want to document your contact attempts and make sure you at least have more than one contact attempt to be able to justify your argument that you did have good faith recruitment. Well, thank you, Jim. And Jim, it's interesting you mentioned the employer referral program. So you're saying now that the size of the company would matter. For example, if I had a company of three employees as opposed to a company of 50 employees, perhaps the referral program would be looked at and be considered as if it wasn't considered an adequate recruitment step. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's not that it's specifically stated in the regulations anywhere that you need a certain number of employees to be able to utilize this. It's just one of those new areas that the Department of Labor is focusing on and in the general area of what is good faith recruitment. So again, it's not something that's in the regulations. Perhaps it's something that they're even going off the reservation, making their own determinations on. That's to be continued as we start to 
disagree with their findings and see what the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeal says. That's absolutely correct, yes. Pam, I'm going to jump forward to you. Um, I know that when you're preparing a labor certification, there's a rule that talks about companies have requirements, perhaps they have alternative requirements, various different ways that a person can qualify for the job. And one of those those rules or one of those things that are out there, I believe, says that those requirements have to be substantially similar, the original requirements and the subsequent requirements. Have you seen any, any recent adjudication trends that have come up based on that particular issue? Yes, that's the short answer. The long answer is what we're talking about here is several related things, one of which is um, the equivalence of uh, alternate requirements and also the use of Kellogg language. And the trend that we're seeing right now is that the Department of Labor has been using what's commonly referred to as the Kellogg magic language, which I'll explain in a second, to basically second guess the employer's reasons for disqualification of applicants. For example, let's say that the position requires a bachelor's degree and five years of experience. And one of the applicants doesn't have a bachelor's degree, but they have over 10 years of related experience. In that case, Department of Labor is sometimes asking, why isn't that person suitable for the position? Why, isn't, why is it that you didn't consider them further? And because they put the burden on the employer to show that they investigated to see if people were potentially qualified, and they put the burden on the employer to show why this person wasn't a ready, willing, able, and qualified U.S. worker, in those cases, we're seeing them use um, what's known as the Kellogg language to deny the case because they said, well, well, you haven't proven why this person with the 10 plus years wasn't suitable. So the Kellogg magic language it's essentially a statement that the employer sometimes needs to include that they will accept any suitable combination of education, training, or experience. And that Kellogg language is required to be included on the application form if the foreign national is currently working for the employer and the employer has alternate requirements, either an alternate combination of education and experience or simply an alternate occupation, and if the foreign national only qualifies based on whatever that alternative requirement is. In that case, that Kellogg language needs to be included on the application. Now, part of the problem is that there's no place on the form where it asks this question. And there's even been Balka cases where the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals told the Department of Labor, your form is, is broken. You shouldn't be requiring this. But at the same time, Department of Labor has said in multiple public teleconferences and through communications with uh, the American Immigration Lawyers Association that they ex still expect that to be included and that it should be placed in box H14 of the ETA 9089 form. So even though Balka has come back and said you can't, you, you can't force them to fix your broken form, um, Employers shouldn't rely on that because you don't want to wait two years for Balka to make a decision on your case. And Pam, I know I alluded to Balka also as well. Maybe you can take a moment just to, to explain what Balka is as part of an adjudication trend. Well, I mean, Balka is the 
board of it stands for the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, and basically they hear requests for review that have been forwarded up from the Department of Labor after a denial of a labor certification. It's essentially an appeal, um, but currently they're taking so much time to make a decision that in many circumstances, unless there is an H-1B status issue or uh, a, a need for that priority date or some other compelling reason why the employer can't re-recruit, generally it makes more sense to re-recruit and refile because it's just quite honestly faster. Well, um, I know you've mentioned when when the Kellogg language is required and where it goes. Um, I'm wondering if you can describe to us what this means to us. Well, what it means is because the Department of Labor is starting to use that language and is as a means to make an end run around the employer's evaluation of applicants, it requires that employers look very carefully at what their requirements are and how they're phrased and how they're expressed on the labor certification. Um, it may be that they don't require experience in the job offered, uh, or it may be that these are their only suitable uh, combinations. They can't accept anything less than a, a certain degree, and that can be expressed on the labor certification. So the first thing it means is take the time, look carefully at the requirements, how the position is framed before you move forward. A lot of times, uh, you know, employers feel rushed into the ads, maybe because they know how long this process is going to take. But it's important to take the time up front. It's important to build a strong foundation. Nobody benefits from a fast denial. So that's the first thing. Look at them, see if there's the, a way to phrase the requirements so that the Kellogg language doesn't need to be included. Um, the second thing is, if the Kellogg language is required, then it's important even more so than usual that the employer be very expansive in the evaluation of potentially qualified applicants. The employer needs to ask the question, why specifically are they not suitable? What is it about their, their experience that doesn't compensate for the education? Why is that specific education required, essential for that position? And then when in doubt, the employer should take the effort of trying to contact people to really show that they investigated to show why this person is not suitable. Thank you very much, Pam. That was fantastic. Now, we're looking at these adjudication trends, and I think that primarily mostly where we're seeing these develop uh, is in requests for audits that we're receiving as the case or the PERM case or labor certification pr progresses through the process. Um, Jim, have you seen any recent trends or any unique things that have come up in the audit process? Well, with the audits, they're really remaining steady at about 30% of all labor certifications that are filed. Um, one of the main issues we saw that was listed in all the original audits when the Department of Labor started this was a travel question regarding positions that may, may require travel or relocation. Um, and the Department of Labor was wondering if telecommuting was also a requirement for those positions. But we've seen that die down a little bit recently. Um, however, uh, one part of the aspect of the audits when they started this was affidavits regarding payment of the labor certification fees. Um, attesting to the fact that from both requesting affidavits from both the employer as well as the beneficiary that the beneficiary and no third parties ended up paying for anything having to do with the labor certification. Okay, thank, 
Thank you. I'm sorry, Pam. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say one thing about that travel question, and I th totally agree with Jim that they seem to have calmed down a little bit. When they first asked, started asking those questions for people who were um, clearly not living in the area of intended employment, um, they kept changing the language, and they started asking questions about telecommuting. And so a lot of what I think was going on was the Department of Labor was on a bit of a fishing expedition. There are a lot of people out there that are roving employees, consultings, uh, and individuals who work in a variety of different locations. And I think the Department of Labor was using this as a means to gather information. Um, there was a lot, there were several different versions of the questions that came out. And there were a lot of people who reported receiving denials because of how they were responding. It's one of those instances where it's very careful when looking at the audit to make sure that they were answering the specific question. And I think a part of what they were getting at was to make sure that the the location and the advertisements were appropriate for that location, that they were getting at the right group of people. So I, although it's definitely calmed down, I think we haven't seen the last of it. I think we're going to probably see some guidance come out from Department of Labor in the near future, ask, uh, directing where those advertisements were go, perhaps revisiting the the old DOL guidance, the Barbara Farmer memo, the Flora Richardson letter, looking at that again. So it's increasingly important for the employer to be very aware of those trends. Right. And I think those letters, that's very excellent point, Pam. And I think those letters you're alluding to are the ones in which the Department of Labor essentially has come out that said if a job is 100% of the time where they're going to be travel relocating to various unanticipated locations throughout the United States, and they don't know each time they're going to change from one location to another, that they can advertise at the headquarters or home branch office of the particular company. Now, it seems to me that PERM, though it's a very complicated process, really distills down to the advertising to the recruitment. And one method that the Department of Labor has is if they go through and review a PERM case, they conduct an audit, they see that perhaps they're not feeling 100% comfortable with the recruitment that took place, they have the option to order something called supervised recruitment. And Pam, I was wondering if you can um, give us an opportunity to explain a little bit about what is supervised recruitment, how that works, and what trends you've seen. Sure. The first thing about supervised recruitment is don't panic. It doesn't mean that you did anything wrong, um, and it's not. it doesn't mean that your case is dead in the water. Um, there has been an increase in the percentage of supervised recruitment, just like there has been an increase in the percentage of audits. And the Department of Labor is using this as a mechanism to make sure that appropriate recruitment was done, that there was a fair test of the labor market. Um, the Department of Labor has discretion to order it, um, and sometimes things like no resumes being received or a bachelor's degree and no experience, in some cases that may have triggered it, but also we see it coming just as a random event. So first thing is, like I said, don't panic. Doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. The second thing is pay close attention to the time frame. Um, there are very short time frames when you're dealing with supervised recruitment. Um, a lot of the correspondence is done by email now, so it's important that the employer contact um, be available to check those email correspondence. Um, it should be copied to the attorney as well, but there are generally going to be questions from the attorney um, in preparing that recruitment. Um, 
The other thing is to um, be prepared for the recruitment requirements. Department of Labor, they're, they're learning from this process, and they are expanding what kind of recruitment they are requiring and what kind of documentation. Um, it's not surprising to see the Department of Labor tell the employer to simply post in 10 different websites that they've designated for 30 days and ask for printouts from the first, the 15th, and the last day. So it's it's going to be expensive, <laughs> and it's going to be it's going to require an investment of the employer's time and money in gathering up that recruitment, posting that recruitment, and getting the proof to the Department of Labor because they are being very demanding about what documentation they want to receive. Um, and although at the same time, you know they have they have shown themselves to be flexible when there are reasonable requests that are made by email in a timely fashion. For example, a newspaper that is in the wrong area, or the newspaper is too expensive, and there is an equally acceptable cheaper option. Um, I have seen them respond to that when they're reasonable when they're made in a timely fashion. The third thing to consider, uh, be aware of with supervised recruitment, is that you need to contact uh, and consider direct applicants in addition to the resumes that are forwarded by the Department of Labor. With the Department of Labor's increased use of websites for supervised recruitment, um, there are a lot of spider sites that pull, a, pull them up, a lot of career centers that pull them up, and then will send applicants directly to the employer. So even though the Department of Labor doesn't know about those people, the employer still needs to consider those people, contact them, just like they would any other applicant. And then the fourth thing is that the employer in just like Jim was talking about before um, and how I was talking about in the context of the Kellogg language, the burden is on the employer to show the basis for disqualification. And part of what the Department of Labor is is asking as part of these uh, supervised recruitment cases is exactly why that person could not be trained in a reasonable period of on-the-job training to overcome whatever it was that they were lacking. So. It's important to take the extra step to contact these people wherever possible, thoroughly document the reason for disqualification, and be prepared to answer these questions. Um, and then the final thing is it's not a good idea to withdraw. Um, if you withdraw a case, um, a subsequent case for the same employer will, employee will still be subject to supervised recruitment. And in addition, uh, withdrawal could be seen as bad faith on the act of, on the part of the employer. Department of Labor can use that then as a basis to order supervised recruitment for all other cases. Um, generally, even if the person has left the company and you're no longer sponsoring them, it's a good idea to at least respond, explain that the person is no longer there, but still show the um, documentation of the employer's good faith attempt to recruit, that this was bona fide in good faith up until the point that the person left, and that's the only reason that they no longer wish to proceed. Well, thank you, Pam. Well, Pam. well, after that, you know, it's funny because you would listen to all these requirements and you would say, well, PERM sounds a little bit scary almost for us to go forward. So I think maybe I'll give you a big picture perspective. You know, PERM is a highly technical process. It's got a lot of details and there's a lot of potential issues that can come up for an employer. There's no question about it. However, if an employer approaches the process with the right perspective, these details should fall very much into place. So 
if you when you're approaching the perm process, if you ask yourself questions like, what are my company's actual minimum requirements for this position? Based on those minimum requirements, can my company meet the prevailing wage for the individual? Have I made a good faith effort to recruit for this specific position? Can I fully document the good faith effort that I've made? Have I made every effort to contact potentially qualified applicants and to see whether they are in fact able, willing, uh, fact able, willing, and ready to perform the job that uh, that uh, that uh, is being presented? Keeping these types of things in mind as you go forward will create a good rubric and a good process for you to be able to get into the right habits for successful cases. On behalf of Pam, Jim, myself, and the Murthy Law Firm, it's been an honor to spend this time with you today. And remember, if you ever need any assistance with any employment-based immigration processes such as PERM or anything else, please feel free to contact the Murthy Law Firm. We'd be absolutely delighted to see how we can take excellent care of you. Thank you so much.